The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's break it down a little bit. We'll get some experts in here, get some smart people uh, in the studio as John Tucker walks out. <laughs> Well, I wanted to beat him to it. Uh, Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist with Bloomberg Intelligence. He's based down there in that Princeton area. Michael McKee, he's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, covering all things economics uh, for Bloomberg uh, uh, Editorial. So we appreciate getting these folks on to do a little bit of a roundtable here. Ira, let's start with you here. Um, I don't know. Inversion, biggest inversion since 1981. I mean, that was a good year for me, 1981, by the way. But, you know... What does that What does that mean to you? Um, it means that maybe Blondie's going to come back. Um, <laughs> there we and, go. Uh, Bell bottoms and uh, and plaid. Um, but uh, you know the the inversion is not a huge surprise because it, at some point um, we're going to have a significant slowdown in economic activity and inflation's going to slow. The question is when. Um, number one and then number two, um, and this is where you know yesterday was important, and I think today's reiteration by Chair Powell that. There's the possibility that they can go 50 basis points in March and, and certainly go higher than what we were expecting prior to his testimony yesterday. Um, is It's reasonable to think that we could even invert further because the, the more that the Fed hikes, and I've been of this opinion for quite some time, that the more that the Fed hikes, the the harder the ultimate landing will be. Um, you know, the, the timing of when that landing is, I think, is more in doubt as opposed to whether or not we'll have a hard landing. It's just a matter of of when, and, and that's why you can get the yield curve inverted by 110 basis points now and maybe 125, 150 basis points ultimately in the future. So, Mike, hop on in here. Uh, Michael McKee, our international economics and policy correspondent. Did I get your title right? Uh, Fancy schmancy. Close um, <laughs> that guy. Uh, yeah, that, the guy who knows the stuff. Um, well, did we really hear anything new here? I mean, in today's session, yeah. or did was yesterday really kind of uh, the, the, the testimony that took the cake? Almost everything that we've heard today has been essentially a repeat. However, uh, he did throw in an important line or two uh, when he was reading his testimony that they have made no decision about 25 or 50, that they're going to be monitoring the incoming data. The totality of the data includes uh, the jobs report, he said, the CPI report. Uh, they'll be looking at uh, those. They'll be looking at jolts. Uh, they're going to look at um, everything that they've got between now and then and, and then make a decision. Um, so I, I think it is probably premature to lock in a bet on 50 basis points because the numbers could obviously change that. If we get strong numbers, then the Fed is probably going to do 50 because he's opened the door for that. So, Michael, just in terms of the economy, it seemed like um, the recession talk, but I think I was asking this question maybe as recently as two weeks ago, is the recession talk, is that off the table now? 
Boy, that seems like a long time ago because now well, it feels like it's <laughs> right back on there front and center. Yeah, if, if you're looking at the yield curve, it's yep. right back on there front and center. My question was, and I was talking about this uh, earlier on uh, Bloomberg Surveillance, um, if you look at a chart of the two-year, ten-year, just to pick one, and you put uh, down the dates that we saw the job, the Fed meeting, the jobs report, the CPI report, the retail sales report, and then don't forget uh, Loretta Mester and Jim Bullard coming out and saying, well, we could have done 50. Yeah. You look at all those things and what happened with the yield curve when those things happened? It just traded sideways. It wasn't until yesterday, really, until Jay Powell came out and, and said, well, we're going to have to do what the yield curve is telling us and you, we should be doing. So I wonder why... Uh, all of a sudden, people have decided that this is a real thing that we have to uh, react so uh, tremendously to when the data has been pointing in this direction for a long time. Well, Ira, you do this for a living. Tell us why. Why are we looking at a yield inversion here of 108? What is that really telling us? Well, it's, it's all about expectations. So I was just uh, just for for fun i was looking at the one year forward rates and what the market was implying where as one does one year <laughs> one year rates would be an, uh, on a forward basis and and when you look at something like one year uh, where the one year rate is expected to be 3 years from now what you realize is hey that the market's expecting um, the one year rate to be at 3.6% right so we're we're talking about um, you know 150 basis points lower than where it is now so so all that the market is telling you when it's inverted like this is that the market expects interest rates to be lower in the future than they are today um, and and because of that you know and the reason is why why does it think that well it thinks that because of what i mentioned earlier is that at some point we're going to have a recession we're going to see lower interest rates we're going to see lower inflation um, and what the market's saying right now is that that that's not going to probably start till 2024 at this point. So so we're in a situation where the Fed's going to hike more and the, and the Fed's going to keep rates high. That's what the market's uh, in, indicating right now. It's saying that one-year rates a year from now are still going to be 5%. Um, and that means that, uh, you know, we're, we're probably just going to have a harder landing and um, and ultimately have a recession. It's just, you know, the, these long lags, like, like there, there's not like a set time when you say, okay, when two stands inverts or when three stands inverts, that you're going to get a recession, right? There, there's all these models that the Fed has and all the economists have. But the thing is, is that there's a, a massively wide range as to how long that takes. And, and obviously this cycle is significantly different from than most others, in particular because of how tight the labor market is. If the labor market wasn't nearly as tight as, as it is, we'd probably already be in a recession or, or very darn close to one. Um, but but the fact is is that we we have you know changing uh, changing paradigm in the labor market since the end of the pandemic that's I think caused the economy to be more robust than almost anyone had expected it to be six months ago or even three months ago. Hey Mike, you know uh, Iris was mentioning the, the, the jolts number, and again, it surprised to the upside, I guess, 10.82 million job openings versus the consensus of 10.55. And then Bloomberg's got a fascinating story that, that, that I was talking about earlier. Restaurant, people are going back to the restaurants like crazy despite the inflation, and restaurants are like, great, we'll open up more stores, but they can't find people to work in them. What has changed fundamentally about the U.S. labor force? Are, did people re- really just leave and they ain't coming there, back? There are fewer people in the labor force. Yeah. I mean, the good news is you guys are doing a morning show here where so you can go out and get a restaurant job tonight. You know, exactly. Tonight. You exactly. can help us out here. Drive an uh, Uber on the side. Yeah, exactly. Um, we, we have seen a definite shrinking in the labor force 
that has come about for a number of reasons. We've had a long-term uh, drop in labor force participation by older workers because the baby boomers are hitting 65 and they are starting to retire. And a lot of them just uh, up and retired during the pandemic because they couldn't go to work anyway. And they say, well, I might as well uh, you know, get that Social Security check. Um, and then we saw a lot of people, uh, as they do, go back to school during that period, took off some of the young people. Uh, and then we had a, a uh, and, and I should throw in, of course, the child care issues that that we had in schools out. Uh, then we had um, basically a lot of people who were looking at the jobs in restaurants and saying, well, there's a lot of jobs open that won't require me to walk around on my feet for eight hours a day and struggle for tips. And so people went into other fields of work. So it's been a while. And the, the jobs that are have been growing the fastest now yeah. are restaurant jobs because they're finally getting around to people who are willing to take the jobs again and they are getting paid a little bit more now so uh it's it's been a combination of factors but it's been an issue and one that's going to likely remain we're we're not going to see a big increase in the labor force it looks like and i guess that i just a little bit of follow-up immigration that's got to play a part in it i mean immigration became so much tougher over the last several years it it absolutely illegal and especially for some of these lower end jobs if you're an immigrant who doesn't speak English, it's going to be hard to get a restaurant or, or um, uh, at least a front-of-the-house restaurant yep. or bar job. But uh, other lower-paid uh, jobs, it's been hard to fill them because they can't find people who, um, who want to work for those wages. And immigrants played a big role in filling that yep. in the past. Well, Ira, hop back in here because we talked a little bit about the labor market. Of course, the payrolls report, I think, what is it, 10, uh, 10 positive or beats or hot reports or something like that is, is a statistic I saw. That's on Friday. Then you've got CPI on Tuesday with uh, inflation expected to drop again um, by, by some margin. What is the trade on Monday, sandwiched between the two data points? <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm not sure what Monday will be because obviously Friday is going to be the big one. And, and we actually did some work um, on you know how big how big moves tend to be in the the bond market based on uh, the different data points and even though CPI and inflation is you know the hot topic and the reason why the Fed's hiking so much and, and the reason why markets are moving the way they are um, the market still tends to move the most on the payrolls report on the employment number and and it's not necessarily the employment number itself although obviously that's critically important but it's really it's also the wage data right so the wage numbers that come out because like Mike was talking about with um, a lot of the changes in in the job market um, you know services jobs and services uh, inflation tend to be uh, influenced most heavily by the um, by uh, the wages of services workers. So if restaurant employees are making more money, that's going to be passed on at least to some degree to the consumer, right? Either that or the margins for those businesses have to contract. So so the the job number is going to be critically important. And I think the CPI report may be a little bit less so. Interestingly, and I think this is um, kind of with our, in our analysis of the market moves versus the data released, Retail sales actually is the second most important, and with CPI as the third. So, so retail sales is still, which makes sense, right? So if there's more demand and sales remain strong, then clearly prices will probably be stickier than they would be if, if sales started to either decline or, or didn't grow as quickly as they had been. So, so really, it's still retail sales and jobs still are, are the key elements of, of 
what the market is looking at in terms of uh, in terms of the future moves. All right, Ira, let's fast forward to uh, March 22nd. What is your Federal Reserve going to do? 25, 50, or maybe other? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, it, it's it's hard to gauge right now because I do think that they are incredibly data dependent. So um, if the data comes out as strong as the market's expecting, then I, I would not be surprised to see a 50 basis point move again. Um, I think 75, like, like so that other, you know, there has been some talk about that, but I don't see the Fed jumping from 25 basis point moves to 75. Um, you know, incrementally, the, though, they could move back to a 50 basis point move, particularly if the data is very hot. It's that step down versus step up approach. It feels like if we go 50, Mike, how scary is that? Does that then put on the table perhaps 75 for the next meeting? No. Um, uh, be Mike is like, absolutely not. want to make it that way. Remember where we are, not where we were. I mean, we are at 475 now. If you did 50, you'd be at 525. You know, 525. Yeah. So 75 would put you over six uh, at, at that point. Why? why you wouldn't need to go that fa- far that fast, and the Fed isn't sure that it needs to go to six yet. We haven't even uh, seen their SEP. So I think that it doesn't put 75 on the table, but what it uh, it does do is uh, raises the question of were they behind the curve. And I think what what, to be honest, if everybody were honest about it, is everybody's <laughs> behind the curve. And uh, if we get this data that comes in strong and they're doing 50, then the market's going to be essentially giving them permission to do it, they're saying, you know, this is, uh, this is scaring us too. And so the Fed would do probably 50, as Ira says, to, to catch up, but I don't think they need to go beyond that. I mean, not in one move, put it that way. All right, Ira, I'm looking at the world interest rate probability uh, function on the Bloomberg Terpo- Terminal, WIRP, W-I-R-P. And it shows me it's kind of got, <clears throat> I don't know, Fed fund rates peaking maybe September-ish, around 5.6%. Is, is that enough? Because I've been hearing talk about a 6% number, maybe even six and a quarter. Is the market still not buying it? Well, I think the markets, uh, you know, we, when we look at something like WIRP, we're looking at a linear probability. So we're, we're saying, okay, the the average, right? So so the the, av- the the weighted average thinks that we're going to hike to around five point seven five percent at this point, right? Which is gets you to, and that's on the upper bound. So that's that's a five point six percent, which is it looks like the market is pricing that for for July. But keep in mind is that some of that is six percent, and then built into that also is only five and a half. So, you know, when you think about the probabilities that are being built in, that's just kind of the, the, the that median probability okay. or the mean probability of that distribution. So, I, I, you know, it's, it's very unclear right now, and I think that the, the Federal Reserve is still in calibration mode, and they've been in, in calibration mode for the last, you know, basically since the December meeting. But, you know, is that calibration going to be that we're only hiking to five and a half, or is it that we have to hike to six because the date is not not cooperating the way that we had hoped. And and it's possible that they could go more, right? Like, look, right now, we're all data dependent. And, and almost everyone's forecast from the beginning of the year, if you go back to December and you look at what everyone was thinking, the path of the economy and inflation was going to be in, in, um, in 2023, the January data blew those up. And because of that, we now have to say, okay, is the market going to follow what the economy is doing? And if the economy is hot, that means we're going to have higher interest rates in the front, and that means we're going to get a more inverted yield curve. And that's just the way that I think this year is going to shape up, is that we just have to look at each data point as it comes in, and the Fed's going to be reactive to all of those. 
Ira, 30 seconds here. I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm looking at a two-year yield at 502. If we're talking about 6%, do we also see 6% on the two-year yield this year? No, two, the two-year yield will would probably get up to like 525, 540, because um, that really depends on when they start to cut and which the market is still going to price for 2024 cuts at some point. So the question is how fast and when do they start those cuts? So, so you'll never have the two-year yield up to the Fed funds rate, it, but it'll be... Um, it'll still go in the same direction, just with a lower beta. All right, good stuff. Ira Jersey, thank you so much for joining us. Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us from lovely Princeton, New Jersey. Michael McKee here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, international economics and policy uh, reporter for Bloomberg TV and radio. Uh, just kind of breaking down what we have been hearing from this Federal Reserve, uh, what we're likely to see from the Federal Reserve, uh, kind of in the context of a lot of data coming out. Uh, over the next several days, it seems like there always is data. But this is a really important because, as Mike McKee and, and our Jersey were suggesting, uh, this is a Federal Reserve that is data dependent. So they will be looking at, uh, you know, the jobs number on Friday, the CPI uh, number next week, retail sales as well. So we'll be following that as well. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash Enterprise Data to learn more. Alice Andre uh, joins us. She's U.S. Interest Rates and Foreign Exchange Reporter for Bloomberg News. Alice, I'd love to get your perspective on kind of how you've interpreted uh, Fed Chairman Powell's testimony over the past couple of days. Well, you know, he really had an opportunity to walk it back today and take back a little bit of that hawkishness that he brought out yesterday. And he just didn't, you know, we settled uh, September Fed swaps around 563 yesterday and they're 564 today. So, you know, he knew where these were and he he knew that, that the market was pricing in potentially a bigger hike coming up at this March meeting. And he didn't take it as an opportunity to say, no, 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 we're going to do 25. So, you know, what's happening in the Treasury market is they're They've obviously flattened the curve quite a bit. We did see some historic tights today down to about minus 110 on twos, tens, and investors are putting some money behind this for sure. What we're seeing here is that the thematic uh, trades that are going through is we're seeing very, very strong 
real money buying in the back end of the curve. Now, real money buyer would be something like an end user, something like an asset manager, an insurer, and a pension fund. And we are seeing those types of accounts buying in the five-year sector, 10-year sector, and ultra 10-year sector, mostly in the futures curve. And uh, traders there are telling me that also there's been some big option plays that are targeting 360 on 10s. That's about 34 basis points below where we are now. So we're getting some real money investing in the back end of the curve looking for lower rates. So, Alice, you have cut your teeth on Wall Street as a tried and true professional bond trader. What's the trade here? Well, I have to say that people have been in flatteners for a very long time. Can you, explain, can you explain what those are, Alice? Sure. A flattener is something where you might want to sell the front end of the treasury curve and buy the back end. So we're seeing the buying in the back end today, as I telegraphed earlier. And so you'd want to sell the front end, buy the back end. And that, the spread between these two instruments would then flatten out. And at the current pace, we're seeing that spread inverted, meaning that it's negative. So two-year yields yielding 110 basis points over a 10-year treasury. And economists, Alice, have told me, and I'm an equity person, so I don't know, but they told me when that happens to this degree, again, we haven't seen that inversion since, you know, 1981, I think. Um, What does that tell you? Well, to me, it tells me that the consumer is very strong, that people think that this will continue, that we will continue to see more inflation. And the problem with the twos tens curve right now is that it's really in no man's land, right? We hit that triple digit target that we've been really eyeing since November. We got to that minus 100 level and it really slid fast down to minus 110. Problem is right now it's in a little bit of no man's land. There's no support until minus 200 basis points. I think that that's like an outlier. I don't think that we're going to get there. But at this point, what you have to watch for is like these round targets. Now, today we slipped another 10 basis points, so minus 110. The next one might be a minus 125 basis points. So we need to test these levels to see and you know, until we can finally pick a bottom. And I will mention that Treasury yields at the back end would be even lower if it had not been for some supply coming in in the mortgage market. We've had about $2.5 billion in mortgage origination in the last three days. That's a lot. That's a way lot. And what that's telling me is that consumers, again, are being very savvy. They're seeing these yields fall at the back end of the curve, and they're saying, this is an opportunity for me to get this mortgage and buy this house. It's becoming more affordable to me. And, you know, when you see people buying houses, and the housing market elevating, all that means to me is more consumer demand, more inflation. Well, Alice, uh, then walk us through kind of what could be the game changers here. You talked about the flatteners that we were seeing in the inversion that we've uh, really been talking about all morning, negative 110 on the twos, tens. But that is actually not the preferred uh, kind of pair that I believe the Federal Reserve looks at. It's like three months, 10 year, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are you seeing in other parts of the curve? Well, actually, I'm not really seeing uh, this big selling in the very, very front end of the curve. I have heard that in Treasury bills, there's been a fair amount of short covering, so people taking some profits there. Um, I would say that, the you know, obviously the big game changer will be Friday, right? Mm-hmm. There's just a whole lot of volatility that's uh, going to be sorted out on Friday. The other thing I would mention is that on 
Friday at midnight, so Saturday morning, the Fed goes into blackout. So if anybody wants to say anything about jobs, they, they're going to have to hurry up and <laughs> say it Friday. Um, but, you know, I think that actually Powell's kind of laid the groundwork. He said, you know, we've made no decision. And, you know, maybe some of those Fed officials that it said we're, we're looking at doing 25, you know, maybe they're not going to be speaking and maybe them not speaking actually speaks of volumes. Alice, you mentioned earlier that you've been seeing some, some real money come into the back end of the curve. Talk to us about just the liquidity in the Treasury market these days. If I want to go in there and put a big trade on, yeah, is it, is it out there, liquidity out there? It's much better. Thank goodness. You know, um, I and I know that because I'm getting flows. You know, before I would say, hey, you know, market's moving around. What's going on? And they're like, mm, there's no flows. Right. And that's when you would see, you know, yield spike or collapse really, really fast. But, you know, the market seems to be um, a l- much more orderly. You know, yep. and I think that we're seeing that, too, because, you know, you're not seeing yields, you know, with these, you know, 15, 20 basis yeah. point rises and declines. You know, you, you, we are seeing big ones, but they're a little more modest. Um, but I, I definitely think liquidity is back in the market. Players are in, they're trading, they're providing liquidity. And I, I would say that overall, trading flows are much better and liquidity is much improved. Alice, 30 seconds here. What changed? What changed in terms How of... How did it recover? How does what recover? How did the liquidity recover? Oh, how did it look? Okay. Um, you know what? I think that finally when we have the yields higher. I mean, people wanted them. We're going to have a big auction coming up here at uh, a 10-year auction coming up at one o'clock. And I have no doubt that that thing's going to go just fine. People want these high yields. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can sit there at a two-year, get uh, 5.05%. Just extraordinary. Alice, thanks so much for uh, joining us. Really appreciate getting uh, your perspective and your reporting. Alice uh, Ander, I'm sorry, Alice Andre, U.S. Interest Rates and Foreign Exchange Reporter for Bloomberg News. She's in Chicago. She was a former floor clerk at Bear Stearns. So she gives you a good, like, trader's perspective. Yeah, she knows know, what the she's talking market about. And all that kind of stuff. So uh, pretty good stuff. But again, uh, this is a Federal Reserve that uh, has um, said it is data dependent. And boy, are they going to get a lot of data to uh, digest over the next several days. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's get down to Washington, D.C., because there's a lot of work being done in the halls of Congress. A lot going on down there. President Biden just announced his budget. We've got apparently some talk. You've got to keep the government funded or something like that. I think that's important. Yeah, sometimes it's nice to have funds in the, think, in the account. <laughs> I want to start there. We can do that with Steve Dennis. He's a congressional reporter for Bloomberg News. Steve, let's start there with the, uh, the, the debt ceiling here. Could you lay out for us in simple terms kind of what it is, where we are, and what kind of has to happen, do you think? Yeah, I mean, right now both sides are basically still, you know, putting out their sort of talking points. That the, the way I, I look at a president's budget, it's sort of like they kick off, and it's like this is basically in my dream scenario. This is what I would like, and right. it's a it's a PR document. But Congress is going to drop kick it into the sun, and then then the real negotiations presumably can start. I mean, they. He's met once with Speaker Kevin McCarthy. They really haven't gotten anywhere on what is ultimately going to be a deal to raise the debt limit probably this summer and have some kind of spending deal, at least for the next two years, that's probably going to cap discretionary spending. The idea that there's going to be a big sweeping budget deal that would have long-term implications, the expectations for that are very low. Uh, but, you know, there's still, you know, there's still people talking on both sides about doing stuff like that. It's just, you know, the appetite from the White House for anything that would touch entitlements is zilch. And they just want to tax people making more than $400,000 a year to sort of raise a couple trillion dollars over the next 10 years. That's going nowhere with the Republicans. And you've got uh, guys in the middle like Joe Manchin. Uh, who has to decide whether to run for re-election next year, has flirted with running for president, um, and has been attacking the White House on a whole host of issues, basically saying, look, why don't we cap, uh, just start with capping uh, some discretionary spending uh, to, to try to reverse this trajectory on debt. Well, Steve, talk to us a little bit about the money situation, for lack of a better term. I really want to talk about the defense budget specifically because it feels like, uh, just from a market's perspective, a market's gal after all, you saw a lot of these defense stocks really outperform after the war in Ukraine. Now we're talking about the Chinese uh, rivalry as well. How much momentum does defense really have under kind of a Democratic administration? Yeah, I think that this is, uh, something where, you know, the, the stars are kind of aligning for more defense spending. Um, you've got Mitch McConnell sort of, been, he's been pounding the table now for two years to ramp up defense spending, not just to deal with uh, Ukraine, but also to counter China and the Pacific. And, you know, he secured that big deal in December, the omnibus package with a 10% defense increase. He wants another big increase this summer, um, I suspect that whatever Biden's number ultimately comes in at, and we're expecting it to be pretty robust, uh, McConnell will want more. Uh, I think the the open question is what happens in the House, where there are a lot of defense spending hawks um, in leadership, but you know Kevin McCarthy also has to deal with folks who don't support. The uh, spending on Ukraine and and uh, and aren't necessarily as enamored with 
spending in general. Um, so I, I, I think there's also a question of dealing with progressive Democrats who don't like spending more on defense and are going to be unhappy if any budget deal Biden signs on to caps the spending that they like, the domestic discretionary spending, but doesn't cap uh, uh, defense spending. So, you know, I think that that's going to be, you know, an open, you know, skirmish in the halls of Congress is, uh, you know, if we end up with a big defense increase, it's going to be hard to to have uh, Biden's left flank happy. How about the uh, the tax situation here? I think, you know, President Biden in a fairly characteristic, I guess, Democratic move is talking to, you know, uh, tax hike on folks over earning over four hundred thousand uh, dollars. What's the whole tax? The appetite in Washington to do anything on the tax code? Yeah, I, I mean, I, the, every once in a while, somebody brings up their some expiring business tax breaks on research and development, some other things on the side that you could come up with some kind of a smaller tax deal. But, you know, I think everybody's kind of looking ahead to the election. And certainly uh, Biden is sort of trying to portray the Republicans as beholden to the rich and the wealthy and sort of playing the populist card. And, you know, that's just not going to, you know, there's just no no uh, appetite for that among Republicans on Capitol Hill. And so I think this is something that ends up getting taken to the election, assuming Biden is is the nominee and, and runs, um, you know, which, you know, he still hasn't officially announced. And, uh, you know, we'll see what goes, what comes out of the election, really. I mean, the next big thing that happens on taxes, as far as like, a big thing is when the Trump tax cuts expire in a few years. That's going to uh, prompt a big bipartisan discussion on things like the salt tax break, which I know a lot of our listeners pay a lot oh, of attention yeah. to. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, th- that salt cap goes away unless Congress keeps it in place. So, you know, there's, that's going to be a huge fight in a couple of years, you know, after the next presidential election in all likelihood. Steve, can we fold in the Federal Reserve here? I think yesterday's testimony was a bit more juicy than perhaps today's is, but I think the fiery exchange between Elizabeth Warren and Jerome Powell really caught a lot of people's attention. Talk to us a little bit about how Congress and all these congressional uh, representatives are really viewing what's going on at the Federal Reserve. Yeah, I mean, it's a very diverse set set of views on the Fed right now, um, which you can expect when they're making such big moves and and so much is at stake. This is not like, you know, the past decade where it was like tiny moves. This is, these are major moves, millions of people's jobs hang in the balance. That was the point that Warren's been making. You know, I've talked to her many times. I wrote about a few days ago about how she's pushing Biden to name a vice chair who would counter Powell on these rate hikes because she... Uh, as she laid out yesterday to Powell and challenged him, you know, what, you're gambling with millions of people's lives and your, you're, you know, your essential plan is to have the unemployment rate go up to 4.6%, which puts 2 million people out of work. And presumably people would then be willing to work for less money and therefore you'd have less labor inflation. Well, her, her worry is that every other time the Fed's gone on this kind of uh, raising unemployment rate to bring down labor inflation, we've had a big recession. And we've never had a recession 
where you end up with only a couple million losing their jobs. You end up with a recession sort of getting out of hand, yeah. and you could end up with five or six million losing their jobs. And if you think about it, heading into next year, that could be a total disaster for Democrats. So that's something that, you know, I think when Biden ultimately makes this vice chair pick, you know, he could be signaling to the Fed, uh, does he want a dove, does he want a hawk? And certainly there are people yeah. on the Republican side who want hawks, and people like Warren who want doves. Yeah, the politics, I think, really crucial for the monetary policy. And, and for our international audience, uh, it's worth kind of saying that Chairman Powell's rebuttal to uh, Elizabeth Warren's argument that Steve just so beautifully laid out was simply that, OK, well, what's worse here? Inflation for lower income households then that hits five, six percent, but is higher for longer because that's really what they're trying to fight against. So uh, two certainly different perspectives. But, Steve, it sounds like, though, Chairman Powell, he's no stranger to political pressure at all. And um, kind of con- referencing here the political pressure during the Trump administration. Do you foresee a similar political pressure this time from the Biden administration? So far, the Biden administration sort of kept their distance, um, you know, and and part. I think the Biden administration, even if they wanted to criticize the Fed, which, you know, I'm not sure they do, uh, you know, this is his Fed. He 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 nominated Powell over over Warren's objections. He named uh, most of the, the the Fed board members. So uh, it, it's kind of hard for him to turn around and then say, "Oops, I, I messed up." Right. So yep. I think the, I think that's that's part of the issue here. But I would say I've talked to a lot of Democrats on this, and while Warren is out there pounding the table on this. Powell still has many, many allies on the Democratic side who have complimented him right before Warren asked her questions. Uh, Mark Warner was basically cheering him on and saying, I think so far you've gotten it right, right basically. Yep. So, All right. Well, it's, it's, it's a divided Democrat. That's right. Steve Dennis, thanks so much for joining us. Steve Dennis, he's a congressional reporter for Bloomberg News down in Washington, D.C., giving the latest uh, on some of the, uh, I guess, budget moves, the debt ceiling, lots of work for our friends in Washington to get going. The eco data that got my attention today was that Jolt's job openings thing. Consensus was 105 million uh, came in at 10.82 million i went back and looked at it over the last you know 20 years or whatever it was i mean you know prior to the pandemic it was like six four five six i mean you know now it's up at 10 and it's been up there for a long time so where'd all those people go but let's check in with anna wong chief u.s economist for bloomberg economics so anna i'm just kind of thinking that that jolts number we're gonna get the jobs data uh non-farm payrolls friday we have a tight labor market and can you have a recession if you have a labor market that's this strong? Well, I think that all the data that we are getting, uh, with the JOLTS data we just saw on this Friday's report, won't fully reflect the softening that had already taken place in the labor market. So we looked at this very deeply. So we looked at you know these notices that employers need to give their um, employees for layoffs, which usually is lagged announcements by two months. And so we are expecting that the jobs data in March or April will show that the layoff rates would have climbed to slightly just above the uh, you know the 2019 level, the average of 2010 to 2019. So I would say the the signs of softening will only really show up in the data by the time that the Fed meets in May or June. So I think right now the picture that we are seeing from the data might be just a little bit lagged. All right. So 
what do you think is again? We're going to get a payroll uh, data point on Friday. Uh, we're going to get the CPI print on next Tuesday. What are you looking for? What would surprise you? What would scare you? Maybe <laughs> nothing scares me. Good. <laughs> but, uh, but okay, here, here's what I think. So I, I think the 50 bips that uh, in, in March is not set in stone yet. Our baseline is still for the Fed to to go 25 basis point. So if the data, if the, if the non-farm payroll actually exceeds 300K this Friday and the CPI core uh, print exceeds, you know, is 0.5% or, or more uh, next Tuesday, then I think for sure we, we, we will be expecting a 50 bips uh, hike. Ah, okay. But if, and, and, and there's the gray area. Uh, of what if the payroll is about 200k and CPI is like 0.4%? That is unclear. But where's if if non-farm payroll comes in below 200k and uh, core CPI is 0.3, then for sure 25 basis point. Okay. So that's where we we are at. All right. And just to just to summarize on that non-farm payroll data point that comes in Friday, the consensus is for 215,000. Um, down from 443,000 the prior month. So, Anna, I mean, boy, you know, we had a guest in earlier that was painting a really bearish picture that this Fed really runs the risk of pushing this economy into a more meaningful and perhaps longer recession than investors are, are discounting. How real is that risk in your mind? So, you know, I think part of the reason why Powell is – you know, has suddenly did a 180 yesterday. Is one, there's this stream of research that says that the lag of monetary policy is actually shorter. In fact, it's only three months long. And if you believe that kind of result, you would have think, oh, all the effect of the tight, most of the effect of the tightening had already shown up, and that will make the, um, you know, you think, well, we definitely need to push the peak rate higher. Um, however, that would also tell you that, well, it's not that bad after all. If the peak effects of, of you know getting rates to 5% is still this really strong economy, it means that the economy can handle it. However, I think the more potent part of monetary policy is the higher for longer part of monetary policy. Imagine if um, rates are at 6% uh, until the end of 2024, and everybody, like the mom and pops on the street are like, well, I can get a risk-free return on my cash for 6%. I'm not going to put my money in bonds or stocks. That by itself, without the Fed doing anything more, would cause a lot of financial tightening as all these money and liquidity were sucked out of bonds mm-hmm. and equities. Well, and, you know, a, a reader uh, pinged me earlier in the day and said, you know, you go to a restaurant these days, you pay through the nose if, if you could even get a waiter. But so some of the inflation out there, the Fed really can't impact. I mean, it, it just seems like the Fed is trying to fight a battle that really it's, it doesn't have the tools to fight, i.e. 60 to 70 percent of our you know, GDP is the consumer. What can the Fed really do there? Do you, again, do you think the Fed is maybe going too far, too well, quickly? The, uh, the, the Fed, the, Powell acknowledged himself that monetary policy is a very blunt tool. However, they have to do something. So I think the most likely, but you're right that, that the monetary policy is not really suitable for these type of inflation. For example, the transition to green, you know, with higher car prices. However, the Fed will have to do something about it because their mandate is inflation. So I think the likely outcome of that is that it increases the chance of this 
very bearish thing, a scenario that you're, you said your previous guest. Right. You know, another question is, that I have is just this 2% inflation target that the Fed has. Why is it 2%? Why is that so special? Why is it not 2.5 or 1.8? What's so great about 2%? Well, I think it's just an approximation, but it, it definitely is a two percent right now because you cannot, uh, the Fed cannot afford to change it when they were unable to to uh, uh, get to that target. They can think about whether two point five or three is more appropriate after this whole ordeal, inflation ordeal is over. But but right now, if they do anything to change it, it will bring make it harder for them to control inflation. What do you say to people who say the Fed is still behind the curve in dealing with in- inflation? Is that still a valid critique? You know, I think if the Fed is, is, is totally, you know, trying to achieve one objective, which is bring down inflation, they would have raised rates to 6 or 7% by now. But they have dual mandates, and it's clear that Powell still hold out hopes that he could achieve a soft landing. And that is what co- what's causing this feet dragging and, and bringing up rates. So I, I think, you know, I think, I think that, yeah, they're, they're running very close to behind the curve. That's my opinion. All right, Anna, thank you so much for joining us. As always, always appreciate getting your perspective. Again, folks, Anna Wong, like nine, 12 months ago, she and the Bloomberg Economics team, man, were they ahead of the curve. They were calling for higher rates for longer. The first ones that I read talk about a 5% rate. Here we are there. Now people are talking about 6%. So Anna Wong and her team doing great work there at Bloomberg Economics and as the chief U.S. economist here. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.